You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. May 21st, 2022. The date of the memorial service at the International Spy Museum for Peter Ernest, the founding executive director of the museum and a 35-year veteran of the CIA. In honour of him, this week's episode is an exit interview he recorded with my predecessor, Vince Houghton, not long after Peter announced his retirement. Peter was a case officer at CIA for 25 years, largely in Europe and the Middle East, recruiting and running agents and getting involved in covert action, counter-espionage and double-agent operations. He later went on to work in the Inspector General's office and as the CIA's Senate liaison. He concluded his career as the CIA's chief spokesman. From there, he came to the Spy Museum where he stayed for 16 years, retiring in 2017. Our time at Spy never overlapped, but I did meet him a few times, and the last time I saw him was after a lunch when I made it out to McLean one time, where we discussed practically every topic under the sun. Such was his range. He was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. He graduated from Georgetown University. He served in the US Marines and the CIA, and he wrote many books on intelligence and espionage. He will be missed. Thank you for joining us here on SpyCast. <laughs> okay, it's good to be with you. You've spoken in the past about your path to going to CIA in the first place yes. back in the 1950s, but it's been a couple years since you've done a podcast, so I want to revisit that. And my question is this. I told you before we started, I was going to start with a little bit of a difficult question. Do you think the 20-something-year-old Peter Ernest would have been a good recruit for CIA today? Let me think about that. <laughs> I don't want to hold up the broadcast. Yeah. Would do you mean? Do you did you the have the skill set? The person you were there. Do you think you would have gone into the CIA today and been a good operations officer? Not a good one, but somebody that they would be looking for. Someone that could do sure. the same skill set as you did at the time. That's a very good question, and I and I must say it sort of makes me thoughtful. I'm not quite sure how to answer. I'm not going to just leap and say, "Oh, absolutely." One thing I would say, and I know this has come up in conversation with you, and that is I had been in the service, military service, came back. My then fiancé was with the CIA, and they were interested. They knew I had a college degree, done my military. So they thought, well, would he be interested in the CIA? Vince, at that time, we didn't know a lot about CIA. We didn't know all the books and television and movies. It had to do with dealing with world affairs, particularly specifically communism and the Soviet Union and so forth. That appealed to me. I'd gone to Georgetown Jesuit College. I had sort of an outlook even by then. 
I would not have known a CIA operation if it bit me. So, no, I'm serious. And so I talked to the recruiters. They talked about travel and languages and exciting things. And, and so I went into CIA really not fully aware of what I would be doing. And I don't mean that in any way to sound deprecating to the recruiters, because later when you go through the training, you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. The one thing I would say is, again, you're saying, would that 20-year-old Peter Ernest be a good recruit today? How much have you seen the agency change, right? I mean, are they looking for the same kinds of people? There's a, an absolutely tremendous focus on the whole terrorism business, which, you know, is sort of a motherhood issue. Any of us would join that. But there's also much more of a military. I mean, I was in the Marine Corps, so I'm not adverse to the military at all. I'm not quite sure how to answer the question, because we know much more about CIA. And because I was in the agency, I'm an advocate of CIA. I mean, you know, if you've been in something, you see the good side and the bad side, but you also understand that a lot of criticism directed at it is not justified. Right. So I think so. I'll give you a tentative thing. So. I'm it's, sorry, it's a tough question. It's never good when you stump you, the guest with the first question. Yeah, well, well right. I did my best. Let me, okay. let me try a different one because we've, we've had a lot of conversations over the past four or five years and you have a very analytical mind and you seem to understand things from a perspective that many others don't. And I think that's why you've been very good at all the jobs that you've tried to do. You didn't know a lot about the agency, so you probably were never even given an opportunity to perhaps be an analyst at CIA, recruited directly in operations. Do you think you would have made a good analyst? Is that something that you look back and say, I did a lot of good work at CIA, but I probably would have made a pretty good analyst also? I don't think so. I can give you a better answer on that one. I do. You're right. I do like ideas. I like thinking about things. But I'm very much of a sort of an inter- interpersonal. I'm more of an extrovert than an introvert. Not that you have to be one to do uh, analysis. But I've thought about analytical work, and of course I've dealt very closely. Some of my best friends were analysts, as they say. I don't think that would have appealed to me. And, and frankly, I don't know that I would have been very good at it. I think being in the field, interacting with people, the sort of physical interaction and dealing with defectors and all that is sort of, it's exciting. I think anal- analytical work would have not held much, just would not have held me as much. That, I, I, th- I think I'm being honest about that one. Let me ask you a related question. It, it, knowing what we know now about the broader intelligence community, right? We might have known back in the 1950s, <clears throat> some of these agencies didn't even exist at the time. Is there another agency that exists today that if for whatever reason CIA wasn't available to you, that would have interested you, FBI or NRO or DIA? Is there, is there another one of the IC agencies that, let's pretend you couldn't join CIA. Is there one of these agencies that would have said, you know what, that's one that I could see myself working at? I don't think so. And I say that because CIA was involved so much with personality assessment, psychological assessment, and so forth. And that held me for many years. I mean, both, both feeling purposeful being in the agency and what we were doing. I think you're pretty close to this. You know about CIA training. We go through a pretty pretty rigorous <clears throat> inspection on the way in. Psychologists, psychiatry, you want, you know, how was your mother, and so forth and so on. And they try to they try and select people as to as to where they're probably going to do better. I mean that when I used to say people, it's not the military, you're not a number. But they really feel this kind of work is sufficiently demanding. If you don't fit there, that's not good. The agency very much depends on people with tenure and experience, particularly in field operations. I think I think they pegged me right that I was a, a field person and not an analyst. So it's not something you can learn in a book. It's not something that you exactly. can even, even learn in training. I mean, most of it, most people right out of training need to be grabbed very quickly by a mentor and taught how it works in the real world. Yes, yes. And the, in some ways, analysis is the same in the agency. In other words, I know you've talked to people like Randy Fierce and others, and so I've gotten some insight into CIA analysis, and not quite the same as you know journalism or other people who do analytics. Although I'll say this, obviously you've got people out there who do tremendous analytical work as journalists and, and produce great pieces. But I, but I think they read me pretty accurately. 
So you're at CIA during some interesting times from the late 1950s all the way up and through the 1990s. And there's always this perception that people within the oper- on the operations side keep all the secrets, right? That's where all the covert action, where all the secret stuff is taking place. And I wonder, I wonder how much did one side of the building know about what was happening on the other? And I don't mean analysts versus operations. I mean, you were in operations, but how much did you know about what was happening with Operation Mongoose? or the stuff that was in the family jewels, or later on the Iran operations, or the recruitment of it and running of Adolf Tolkachev, like all these milestone moments in CIA history. If you weren't directly involved, how much compartmentalization was there within the operations side of the house? Uh, that's an easy one, a great deal. I would have not known about those other activities. Certain activities become more highly compartmented than others, sensitivity, money, whatever it is, Azorium, the one where we retrieve the submarine, that becomes highly compartmented. It's not just top secret, but it goes into a compartment. It's interesting. There were efforts by the agency to, in some cases, share successful operations. Uh, I'm trying to remember one. You know, we were all called into the auditorium and, and briefed, but by that time it was sort of out. But the um, even though there have been these, these uh, aims and so forth and so on, it was always pretty hard to learn about what was going on in other areas. People were sensitive about what they were doing, particularly about when you got into sources and what you were doing and so forth. Well, that mentality shifted a little bit because if you go to CIA today, not only do you have a museum, but you have this art collection of successful operations in the past. And a lot of new CIA recruits are instilled with this appreciation for the agency history, for some of the accomplishments of the past whether it's Ben Laden's AK-47 or pieces of the Berlin Wall. or There there is a painting of the Glomar Explorer, Azorian. There's a painting of Tony Mendez and all these operations. Has that changed over time, or was that something when you were a a new recruit? See, I didn't have a lot of history at the time. I'm not trying to age you, but it's only about a decade at the point when you come into CIA. But was there a, we come out of the OSS, like this is our foundation? Is there... Well, it's interesting because you and I now, you and I have been working together for a long, for not a long time, but for several years at a museum. And I was somewhat involved with the Marine Corps Museum down in Quantico. And I was also involved with the agency museum. We really didn't think about the museum as, well, we didn't think about it as important. We didn't, we didn't give it weight as an inspirational thing. For, you know, young recruits to walk down and say, gee, we did that and we did that. Well, look there, that failed. But I now, having been here for a number of years, see museums in a very different way, particularly so-called legacy museums. The Museum of the Army. The muse- now, the Museum of the Army is not open, is it? Yeah, that would be your, your legacy. No, but the point is that it's... Now, the Marine Corps, which has one of the greatest marketing campaigns in the world... People down there, they're, they're the mothers of Marines or the daughters or people who were killed and so forth. It's a legacy museum. Well, that's what the CIA museum. It, it's, I think it's, it's meant to be both inspirational for the staff and also for people who, parents and others who've come there, maybe because their son's getting a star on the wall having been killed or something. It's impressive. So I, I think museums... Do a lot more than we really than we realize. I think in the last few years, a great deal has been written about museums and what works and what doesn't. And I think uh, I, the museum at the agency came under me for a brief period when I was director of media relations. I paid very little attention to it. There was someone who did it, and as long as she did, <laughs> and she had a love of baseball, so Moberg had a place yeah. <laughs> there, and 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 the Civil War. So we always had a Civil War display, but. I just, I, I didn't attach a great deal of significance to it. Let me ask you a little bit about your broader career and people that you worked with, because not only did you have colleagues who were lost in the line of duty, whether it's people like Richard Welch in Greece or it's people in Beirut, when they, they, that was one of the largest loss of life in CIA history, but you've also had colleagues who have a more notorious ending. You work very closely with Rick Ames. You were Rick Ames' boss at one point, or at least his supervisor at one point, as now being a time of retrospection to a degree. And this is a weighted question. Let me ask it, and because why not? Is it more emotionally disturbing to have someone die in the line of duty or someone to be a traitor? 
who do you look back and say, I am more disturbed historically about the loss of life in Beirut or in Greece or the fact that someone like Rick Ames was able to do what he did? You said none of these questions would be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting. You're posing questions that I simply haven't thought about that way. But, but now that you ask the question, I, I think the people who, who I know who died, would, as we say, were doing exactly what they wanted to be doing. They died in the saddle or on the podium or however you want to put it. I think it's much harder to stomach the traitor, particularly someone that you've known and you had reason to be confident in, or in the case of Ames, he, he was a, a friendly fellow and, and he did a good job. He did a good job. He, was one, he had Russian. He was, used him as a debriefer. He hadn't turned at that point. This came later. I, I would say I've turned my thoughts more to it Ames as, a, as troubling me than my friends who are lost. Yes, of course, my friends who are lost. Yes. Ames is the more troubling one. Did, did the friends that you had lost give you second thoughts for the safety of your family? And especially things like Beirut and the Who's Who book coming out and yeah. targeting, you know, naming particular names. Was I, I certainly... Your family, some people knew what you did. Actually, some people were involved in the agency themselves. But you've told a story about it. It took a while before you let your kids in on what you were doing. But was, were there second guesses when you saw firsthand people that you knew losing their lives in the line of duty and putting your, your family or your, your life as a, you know, a, a breadwinner or a, a head of the family uh, in jeopardy? Well, I think being somewhat in jeopardy came with the job. As you well know, it's not James Bond, but there may be times when you feel things, you know, aren't going the way they should. But, and I had two or three of those occasions. I was concerned about the family. I think I would make one distinction here, and that is that during the Cold War, just to block that out, we really weren't trying to kill each other. And that's no longer true. With the terrorism and terrorists, CIA has got a big bullseye on it on its back. Any intelligence service, any American, you know, overseas. So I would be even more concerned today. We're providing more weapons training, for example, to our families going out, defensive weapons training. I, I uh, was actually stationed in Athens when the uh, fighting broke out in, in Cyprus. And so I went there right after the Turks had bombed the northern coast. This would have been 63. And uh, I left my family in Athens. I, I felt they were in a sort of what you might call a safe haven. But, well, first of all, yeah, you're aware you're in some jeopardy because bombs were going off in the city and so forth and so on. And they were using kids to, you know, it's almost like suicide bombers. When you're separated from your family and they're not in the safe haven of Konos, the United States, you, you are concerned about it. Of course, I think I would be even more concerned today. I think the sacrifices and risks people are taking in the Foreign Service and in CIA and so forth are even greater. Look at the, this latest thing in Cuba where right. we don't even know what yeah. it is. These, In fact, I saw the other day there was a report that uh, apparently whatever it was has caused some neurological damage. Yeah. Well, I, that's interesting. I was going to segue onto this idea about the kind of unwritten rules during yes. the Cold War, about where yeah. everyone kind of understood that there were limitations to what you could do to each other's people, whether they were diplomats or diplomats suspected of being intelligence officers. And you've talked in the past about you're not shooting everybody. You're, you didn't carry a gun for the vast majority of the time. For the majority of time I didn't. I think there were a couple of instances I did, but it was just because a situation was going on. Right. But, yeah, it was like an unwritten an unwritten rule, if you want. Yes, we were trying to embarrass each other. We're trying to recruit each other. We're trying to cause each other all kinds of grief. But the line stopped at the assassination. Has that line shifted a little bit, even with countries like Russia? I'm thinking of the video of the American diplomat who is basically getting the tarnation beat out of him, trying to fight his way back into the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, or the stories about American diplomats being harassed whether their family pets are being poisoned or their houses are being destroyed or trashed, that seems that the line has changed a little bit about what is considered legitimate 
activity um, for these kind of relationships. Yeah, I think there were times in the Cold War where that activity went on. <clears throat> Some of our diplomats were given a rough time where the surveillance was not just surveillance, but harassment yeah. surveillance. Obviously, homes were bugged. There were incidents involving things like pets and so forth. We finally had had enough. And so we appointed, we appointed, uh, there was an individual called Jim, uh, his name was Jim Nolan in the FBI, and he was made an ambassador. And he, in effect, and I don't know if that still exists, but he, in effect, oversaw reciprocity between the countries. If, if, if you went to Bulgaria and had to spend three months getting a phone, by George, the Bulgarians would spend three months here <laughs> getting a phone. That, that was yeah. the spirit of that. That may have helped temper that, but there were times where the uh, certainly the then Soviets were not what sort of they were not immune or they were not adverse. Right, they were not adverse to people have gotten roughed up. Yes, not killed, but roughed up. If we could transfer you back to the twenty-year-old Peter Ernest or the twenty-five-year-old Peter, would you be dying to be part of Moscow Station today? Is that where it's at to be a young CIA case officer sent? into Russia to do old-fashioned human work? Well, it sounds very exciting. I, I ha, you, you, you catch me at an odd time because I'm reading uh, The Billion Dollar Spy, which is Tolkachev and the others. And I, I spent 10 years in the agency's Soviet East European division. So I worked directly with Soviet operations and met some of these people like uh, Kuklinski and so forth who were extraordinary people. As you know, too, because you're a historian... Many of our sources were volunteers. They were trying to come to us for one reason or another. That would still sound exciting to me, yes. I was, in fact, I was on track to go to uh, Warsaw COS at one point, and circumstances got in the way. But that, that is something that appealed to me then and would still appeal to me. It's a very exciting, challenging. I know that in one operation I was involved in, not in the so-called denied area, you know, I knew that what I had gotten went to the president's desk. There's a certain exhilaration right. in that. And he probably read it, too, which is... Well, <laughs> no, he wouldn't have read the whole thing. It was yes. the plans for the essay, too. Right. Yeah. I was making a joke about no, no, but I, reading yeah. presidential daily briefs. <laughs> that, yeah. Let's kind of make that transfer to the relationship between the agency and the government, because you witnessed Church and Pike from within CIA, and some of that you were at, you were working for CIA when those mid 1970s reforms took place. Yes, not well. Go ahead, you do your question. Well, I was. It was more of your inside CIA during that time period, and then of course you become part of the CIA IG. And so I want to ask about: Is the Office of the Inspector General is SSCI and HIPSI are the oversights? Are they still working, or did they ever? Or I understand that at heart there are legitimate reasons for having them, but have they ever stood, have they ever lived up to the expectations? I, I would say in the main, I think they have. You have to remember we're the agency's a relatively large organization involved in a myriad of activities. The House, the, the uh, HIPSI, or the Senate, it's a handful of people because you know you have the members. Gates writes very well about that in his book, uh, Out of the Shadows. Every, each senator is on about X number of committees. They can only address so much. And there, there happened to be, I was covering the Senate. There were senators like Glenn who took a special interest and came out to the agency, was briefed, and so forth. They weren't all like that. The, 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 a select committee, by definition, has been selected by the leadership. That is, people who they consider have the gravitas to sit on those committees. They are like Lippmann once described journalism. It's like a searchlight. It's in this corner, and then it jumps over to that corner. It's not like it covers everything together. So that's both the uh, strength and weakness of, of the oversight committees. The spirit of the oversight committees, I think, is good. I was in some, all the many of the hearings were closed, but I was... I was, uh, I'll give you a specific example. I was up there with Admiral Turner when it was DCI, and he's just passed away. And, um, and they actually cleared the room of most of the staffers and many of the others who were there, and, uh, because he was briefing them on a sensitive operation. 
And they said, well, uh, let me ask you, Director. They preferred to call him Director rather than Admiral. Let me ask you, Mr. Director. He said, do all of do, do your, your staff components agree with this operation? And his, opera, and his answer was, no, frankly, they don't. And several of them have written letters to me, which I'll be glad to share with you. It, it was a chance that they were very frank with one another. He was frank that it was a sensitive operation. He was frank in disclosing that people hadn't agreed, and, and they treated it They treated it accordingly. Uh, I was up there when, when they decided to look into something, and they had competent leadership at the staff director level. They could be very, very effective. Here again, I'll, I became close friends with a couple of the staff members. We just, you know, we were interested in the same things. And even though we were adversaries in, in, in title, we were not in, that in spirit. You know, we're way out there in Langley. And the people who c- covered the hill had these old beat-up cars we used. Uh, but I was down there two and three times a day. Well, I think that's what people may not understand is that, the, like you mentioned, the, the members themselves, all they get all the headlines, Burr and Warner and all the headlines, but it's the staffers and the staff directors that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And they're the ones that have to be free from politicization, even though there are Republican staff, there's Democratic staff. Like it's, you get a job as a Democratic staffer on SSCI. It's not like you're just on SSCI. So let me ask you about the politicization of intelligence, because it seems like the House side, since the very, even the Pike Committee was politicized yeah. far more than the Church Committee was. And then today, there's almost a direct lineage where SSCI seems to be bipartisan, members working together, whereas the House is a bit of a mess. And is that, has that been your perception throughout the years, or have there been times when one was better I than think, the other? I think, like politics itself, it waxes and wanes. Um, <clears throat> what I would say is that. What we had, and I'll take the SSCI as an example, each senator on the committee had a staffer. That was his staffer. So obviously that was a a Democratic senator. His staffer was Democratic-oriented. But then most of the other staffers were what were called professionals. That is, they were not, they might have been Republicans at heart, Republicans or Democrats, but they were considered professional, they were considered totally nonpartisan in their work. And we respected that. I, I, thought, I thought that the system worked. I was, what happened was that the Church Pike Committee took place in 75, 76, and I was sent to be head of the Senate staff and a friend of mine, uh, uh, head of the, of the House staff, because we were both operations officers and they wanted professional operations officers to be dealing with the Senate. Because, in other words, with the members. So they would know they were dealing with a real operations officer and, you know, not, not getting a... Someone from somewhere else that's just <laughs> as equally important, else, but yeah. not, yes. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, and, and you know, uh, Vince, it's, 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 so much of it is leadership. The leadership, we had, we had some wonderful members, Senator in, in a way, who was up there and, and others who were well regarded by other senators. And so when they had been briefed on something and went to brief the Senate themselves, they had credibility. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Not to get too political because I get... Nasty emails as it is, but keep them coming. I love them. Let me ask you about your view of the government writ large, the administration's relationship with CIA today. Is that something that bothers you, seeing the CIA over its history has had times where it deserves to be criticized? There have been some mistakes along the way. There's a missed intelligence, some 
bumbling covert action, some really bad ideas. So there are times when CIA should be criticized. Is it frustrating as a former CIA lifer to see the CIA being criticized or used as a political tool when it doesn't deserve to be, like some have argued it is being today? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think, yeah, I think there's a real, well, let me put it this way. You're particularly in the case of CIA, you're talking with, with people who have largely been trained not to seek publicity, not to look for, there's going to be no parades, not to, and there's no parade after the Cold War, not to look for the kind of recognition that might come out of being winning a winning army in World War II or, or, or something similar to that. And so people in Sierra are trained not to look for that sort of recognition. On the other hand, to be abused publicly it is demoralizing. It is demoralizing. I mean, I can't say anything else right now at this time of, of doing the podcast. It's almost like saying it's the FBI's turn in the barrel. Right. They're, they're going through a terrible time. But I have to tell you, a lot of that work, FBI work and CIA work, it's lonely, it's hard, there are sacrifices, there are families. And then to be beaten up in, in public, and yes, no question, there have been times when criticism was due, times when praise would do but couldn't be given. So I, I think you shouldn't underestimate the effect that bad leadership or unfair leadership can have on a workforce. Are you surprised at how vocal some more recent CIA directors have been? I think of George Tenet after 9-11 and, and after he'd stopped being CIA director. Sure. And the like the documentary Manhunt, which was such a good documentary about 9-11 and about the hunt for bin Laden where, and talking about enhanced interrogation and other things. Or the documentary uh, about all the spy masters, if you saw that, where they got all the former CIA directors. It was on Showtime. And yeah. bringing up the ideas about mistakes in the past, everything from enhanced interrogation. And then I'm thinking about people like John Brennan and Jim Clapper nowadays. Jim Clapper not being a CIA director, but yeah. a DNI, yeah. about how openly vocal. Mike Hayden's another good example, right? Yeah. These are people who are, Mike Morell. <clears throat> people are on TV all the time being yeah. very vocal about politics, about national security, about things that, I can't imagine Alan Dulles doing this. I can't imagine <laughs> one of the one of the former operations you, guys. You remind like, me of, when you say Alan Dulles, you make me think of Casey. Because right, uh, yeah, well, Casey. I, no, but Casey, <clears throat> I remember we'd go up with him to the hill and, and it was just a nightmare because he mumbled so much yeah. they couldn't understand him. So finally what they did, they had a microphone rig just in front of him. So then what they got was amplified mumbles. mumbles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there are several views on people speaking out. David Atlee Phillips felt so strongly about the agency having been misunderstood and abused during the uh, Church Pike Committee period that he chose to resign and he found that Association of Former Intelligence Officers which in its own way has tried to be an advocate, a nonpartisan advocate of a robust intelligence service. I think, I, I have to say, when, when I was, I was a director of media relations under Bob Gates when he was at the agency, and he was for greater transparency, and I agreed with that. And so I feel the same way now. And I feel that we are, at a we are at a point in our history as a republic where we hear from everybody on policy, actresses and actors and so forth and so on. Intelligence people, you know, by definition, are people who have spent their whole careers trying to understand what's going on in defense of our country. So I think that I would not deny them a voice. I think I feel a little way about the same way about former senior military officers. I think they're military people. They've been trained. And where they feel there's been abuse or they feel misunderstood, after they get out, they speak out. Now, they're encouraged to speak out if they're in the, the staff, the general staff. I frankly, and the people I see speaking out, you use the example of General Hayden and and uh, General Clamper, I, I find it quite edifying. I, I'm supportive of that. Do you think the, the fact that more people at least think they know more about the CIA today makes it easier or harder to be a spokesperson for the agency? It, it does, does the amount 
Because if you're if you're a spokesperson for CIA in 1959, when very sure. few people know what the agency does or what it's done or what it what is going to do, that's one problem because you have to educate the people about the agency itself. Yes. But now there's so much pop culture, there's so much information, a lot of bad information about the agency. Is it a double-edged sword that is both easier and harder, or do you lean one way? Would it be easier to be the spokesperson? Because you were, was it 90? When were you the spokesperson? Oh, roughly uh, 80, late 80s through 91. Would your job be easier today or harder today if you're the spokesperson for CIA? Well, I made a point of never saying can neither confirm nor deny. I never said that. To me, the strength of that position was developing good relations with the so-called national security journalists, people who covered us, and being able to level with them, and if necessary, go on, uh, off the record. And also, you could, if there, was a, if there was a relationship of trust, you could bring them in on brief them on something and ask them maybe to hold this element or something. I, I think, and, and certainly overseas, when I was overseas, I knew the American, the American journalists overseas, all, we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to understand the local government and what's going on. And it made no sense to me not to talk to people who were doing exactly the same thing. I think that the Office of, of uh, Public Affairs, with its relationships, and one of the things that we've done historically is uh, we will bring journalists in who are going to areas in the world and they'd like to hear the CIA view. We bring them in and give them a briefing. There's two things about that. It's not classified. And two, we're not tasking them. We don't say, now that you're going so-and-so, here are the questions. It's just, it's one way I think that we feel we can pay back the taxpayer, a select few in this case, for the work that we do. Along the same vein, let me ask you about pop culture, because we've certainly dealt with it plenty in this museum, but you've dealt with it also because you were the liaison between CIA and those making the pop culture. There's multiple questions I could ask. I could ask the burden or benefit question, but I'm not going to because I won't put you on the spot there. But I, I find it interesting, and you can comment on this, that at one point during the Second World War, and of course it's the Second World War, so rules don't always apply the same way they would today, the OSS was fully funding John Ford to make a movie that won an Oscar. And you can see the Oscar here in the International Spy Museum. Yeah. But then jump ahead to a couple of years ago where the CIA had a minor role in assisting the filmmakers for Zero Dark Thirty. Or you yourself had a minor role, and the CIA had a minor role in helping the Tom Clancy movie, what was it, Patriot Games? Patriot, no, Games, Patriot yeah, Games. Yeah. And there was a backlash against that. There was a public backlash and sometimes a, a, very, a lot of vitriol about the CIA propagandizing Hollywood. Is this overstated or is this, is this a line that has to be carefully walked to make sure that the CIA is not heavily influencing what's being done if they're assisting in something? Yeah. I, I think the times that we have advised on film, on films, you were using that as an example, movies, films, maybe TV, are essentially, they're passive in that we don't go out and say we want to play a role. As you know from the literature, J. Edgar Hoover insisted that every film made about the FBI would go by his desk. We have nothing like that. People do come to us, and they are looking for accuracy. They're looking for whatever it is they're doing. They want it to have at least the appearance of being real. I'm not talking about the, the Bond-type films, but the ones like Zero Dark Thirty and so forth. And so to the extent, I think, that we can steer them away from really ridiculous assumptions or right. presumptions about the agency, I think that's a, valid, a useful input. What do you think about former CIA officers who have gone on to do fiction work, like Joe Weisberg with The Americans or Jason Matthews with Red Sparrow, which is now in the movies now? I mean, you yourself didn't go this direction, but you dabbled with talking about fiction in your book about the Harry Potter yeah. series. So, of course, and you look back at Ian Fleming being a former intelligence sure. officer, writes the ridiculous sure. Von Von novels, which are much more realistic than the movies are, that's for sure. You think that is a positive, or is it problematic in that a lot of weight gets attached to a project if there's a former intelligence officer helming it, that the Americans done a great job of kind of staying true. But if the Americans took a turn into homeland territory where things got somewhat out there, 
Would there be a problem with having a former intelligence officer attached to a show like that? How much, let me try to, I'm trying to find a way to ask this question. How much of a burden is there on a former intelligence officer to tell it the right way in order to make sure that people who read it, watch it, ingest this pop culture are getting a quasi-realistic portrayal of reality? I guess I would use as an example yourself. You were involved in, in what I would consider combat operations, and I could see someone like you being hired as a you know, consultant and so forth on a film about combat, for example. And I think that the role is very similar. In many cases, you're saying, no, we wouldn't do that, or no, it wouldn't happen that way. But the, the authors and even the filmmakers do play by the rules. I don't want to say everybody does, but there is a publications review process in the agency. The two people you've met, I know uh, Jason Matthews has gone through that. I don't know how, I know Weisberg, who's done The Americans, and I know uh, one of the people on our board, I know Keith Melton, is one of the advisors on that. And yet there are many people in intelligence who would look at The Americans and say, oh my God, right. never, all these things would never happen all at once. But again, it's Hollywood. It, uh, Hollywood with a big H. You know, intelligence people were professionals, so I think it's like bringing a military officer or somebody from the Air Force in to advise on Top Gun or something involving, right. you know. Let's wrap this up by talking about where we're sitting right now in this museum. This is basically the exit interview for the Peter Ernest tenure as executive director. You're sticking around on our governing board. We're going to see a whole lot of you. I'll be looking forward. over your shoulder. Yes. <laughs> How crazy was the idea for a paid museum in Washington, D.C. focus on spies when it was first brought to you? I love hearing this story because your response to our founder, Milton Maltz, when he said he, what he was going to do, you didn't think it was going to work. No, you're absolutely right. I was, uh, I'll give them credit. Milton Maltz and uh, one or two of his people came out to the agency to brief us and they just wanted to say, look, we're not trying to uncover secrets or give away the farm or anything. And that was, it, was a cur it was a courtesy kind of thing. It was nice to do. That's the last I thought of it. There had been a little effort by somebody to start something called the U.S. Intelligence Museum. And it never got any money. It never got anywhere. The people that did it were intelligence people, not business people. And I think of it, it opened, you know, out in Skaggsville or something called the U.S. Intelligence Community Museum. Probably would have gotten 100 visitors a year or something like that. So I frankly was skeptical, a healthy skepticism about, given the limitations on what could be placed in a museum like that, yes, I had a skepticism, which I shared with him at the time. <laughs> I remember this. And... Uh, to the extent that even uh, when I was approached about being the executive director, I, I, I had some skepticism. I also had some reservations about wanting to get into a, a, a full, this kind of a demanding job. My wife said to me on the eve of my meeting with, with Mr. Walls and his colleagues here, well, why are you going down there if you don't even, you're not even sure you, <laughs> you want to go in? And I said, listen, I'm an intelligence officer. If somebody wants to talk to me, I'll talk to them. If you remember my first interview with you, that was my wife talking to me the night before, like, you don't really want to work at a museum. What are you going talking to? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah, no, yeah. that was, uh, yeah. yeah, so that was never my intention, but you never know what happens when you walk in no, and have you a conversation don't. Yeah. with people. Well, in fact, let me just pick up on that. You really, your understanding of and your commitment to intelligence work, in my view, grows as you go into it. I did not go into CI thinking, oh boy, I'm going into intelligence work, I'm going to be a spy or anything. Nothing like that. The more I knew about the work, the more I became involved, the more committed to it I began. And, and I have to say that's very true of museum work. It, and you look at it in a profound sense. And you, you have been as deeply involved as anybody in shaping, helping shape what this museum will look like. But it, 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 it's a thing that grows on you. It's not just putting stuff on shelves. Well, you know, I mean, my boss, who we, we won't name because she hasn't said it was okay, but my direct boss here at the museum, the first question she asked me in the interview was, what do you love about museums? And I said, I don't really like museums. I was trying to be honest. I was there just like, I, I don't know why I'm here. They could stay. Yeah. Let me ask you this question, because we have to walk a fine line here between being accessible to a teenager and not dumb down so much that a former Berkeley. professional like yourself yeah. 
will think that we're Disney World for spies. I wonder, since you have a close association with AFIA, which you've already talked about, you know all of the, the former former colleagues, some who are who have been retired for 20, 30 years, some that are just retired, so you have a wide range of ages. I'm wondering from the last 15 years if the perception of the museum has changed with older professionals. Have, have we gotten better perceived among those of that higher level? Mm -hmm. the First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by, by quoting General Clapper, whom you referred to, when he was here the other day for a luncheon. Among his closing remarks was he thought how generally ignorant the, the public is, through no fault of its own, about how intelligence and intelligence agencies work, dealing with the many, many issues that they have to uh, cope with. And he said, I, I, I believe this museum has, can play a role in helping that process. It's funny you ask this because I think there are any number of people in intelligence who might not come down because, oh, museum, it's sort of disdainful, if you will. Those who have come tend to come back because at both they want to show their friends right. or other people, not the specific operation they worked on, but sort of the nature of the work. Why, why was such a camera made? Why was such a thing designed? It sort of helps be a catalyst for more discussion about it, whether it's with their families or wherever. I, I know when I've gone out to the agency, I've had people literally come up to me and say, I just want you to know I think the museum is doing is just great. Because they see it as one of the places. I mean, look at the number of visitors. What is it, almost 9 million? Yeah. They see it as one of those places. Apparently, there's a fairly broad respect for museums by the American public. They're distrustful of almost everything else. But the trust in museums is fairly high. And so I think it's a place that some of those senior professionals refer to if they've come down. Is there anything we left on the table that we regret we didn't accomplish during your tenure as executive director? Is there anything in the 16 years you've been here that you set out to try to do and we just weren't able to pull it off for one reason or another? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I, there are two things. One, uh, I think, was circumstances, and that is that as you well know, we have been a for-profit right up until very recently. And that really didn't, did not enable us to do some of the things that we now do, the wonderful relations we now have with other museums, intelligence community museums and others, and you've been in the forefront of that. That just wasn't happening, and it was because we were a for-profit museum. You know, every agency now has a, a cadre of lawyers, and, and I don't mean to denigrate them, but if, if you're going to help this museum, how come you're not going to help others? It's a perennial question. And so I think the doors to that kind of collaborative work and so forth simply were not open, let me put it that way. And yeah, there was one thing that I bent my sword on. I always thought that the, the Boy Scouts... We've had any number of people uh, who've been as directors, Webster and others, Gates, who've been Eagle Scouts. Right. Yeah, Bob who, Gates was a Bob Gates Scouts, was an right? Eagle Scout. Webster yeah. was an Eagle Scout. I just read that uh, Ridge, former head of Homeland Security, I think was an Eagle Scout. But anyway, my point here is the Scouts began by Baden Powell as sort of people to look on the coast to make sure no one was invading. But the very nature of scouting work to learn and observe and so forth and so on, lends itself to intelligence work. And so I've always, uh, I was disappointed. I took a couple of runs at it. And it's bureaucratic, it's a bureaucratic organization. And it was bureaucratically hard to get them to adapt a new merit badge, not just a patch, which says I've been at the spy museum. We do that, but a merit badge. And I think it would, I, I really think it would behoove the Scouts to have a merit badge for national security. In other words, we're not trying to create a cadre of little spies, but people who, national security is about understanding, analyzing things, understanding things, really be motivated to try and get such a merit badge and, because it's all about what they're doing. What are we looking at, STEM studies and that sort of thing? So anytime the Scouts can orient themselves to that sort of thing is for the good. I failed. So that, that I, <laughs> so I think if I would point to two things, I would say those. 
So, so what's next? You've been busy your entire life. You really haven't had time to, to pick up a lot of hobbies. Do you know how to relax? What's, <laughs> what's the next 10 years look like? What, what do you, you're riding off into the sunset to play golf? I've never seen you as a golfer. No, and yeah. I'm not. I, yeah, I did play golf. I wasn't all that good at it. But no, what I, I would like to do, my immediate problem is we're downsizing and moving into a condo. So I, trust me. If you ever have to do this, the books are the hardest thing. And I don't have a, uh, uh, I have some intelligence books, but it's not a collection like French first editions. It's an accumulation. It's still hard because we're going to move into a condo. But that done, uh, then I, I, uh, I'd very much like, like to keep my hand in. Uh, there's a movie that's, that I'm partially involved in, if we can get the option back, uh, and, and it, it happens to deal with intelligence. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is off air so we can, I don't want to give the, the thing away. But that sort of thing, or some writing, or being involved with creative works, uh, would appeal to me very much. Not a nine, I say nine to five. This is not nine to five. This is really more than nine to five. But not this kind of sort of time demanding thing. So I'd like, no, I'd like to keep my brain alive here. <laughs> Peter Ernest, the now-retired former executive director of the International Spy Museum, just hung up his trench coat and fedora <laughs> and is now moving on to bigger and better things. Peter, we really appreciate you taking the time. I was going to say one last time for SpyCast, but we're going to have you back at some point in the future. So for now, we appreciate you taking the time to talk <laughs> okay. to us here. Vince, thank you very much for the interview. It was a very good one. You made me think. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.